Hey everybody, welcome back to the 33rd episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Design the Everything here with Harrison of Precision Ingenuity. How you doing, Harrison? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Sometime I want to listen to more than the first 14 seconds of that song. I really have no <laughs> idea what comes after that. Well, what you need to do is you just need to fade it down into where it's in the background yeah. while we're talking. And then, and then it I can just kind of fade the, out. I don't think I can adjust the volume without restarting it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's super annoying. <laughs> I'm refusing the maybe, urge to maybe, play with Maybe that's right the now, double but... premium option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still have 59 episodes left in my... Uh... Oh, no, I'm bad at math. We have 51 episodes left in my uh, prepaid-for subscription to Zencaster. So we have at least 51 episodes left. Well, we'll keep this going. I'm okay I also just realized I definitely said last week that we had to do 60 episodes because apparently I thought there were 60 weeks in a year. No, there's yeah, 52 sure. weeks in a year. <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I was I was I was like I'm not sure what you're talking about, but I didn't I didn't do the subscription, so maybe it's a little bit longer. Maybe you get a month or two free or something and then it kicks in from there. Uh let's see. Last time Yes, the last podcast was a Monday. I got a root canal on Tuesday, which oh, no. means I was on painkillers on Monday. So I blame it on that. Yeah, that's that's fair. Not that not that Tylenol or Advil should make you forget how many date or how many uh, weeks are in a year, but that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. I'll allow it. <laughs> oh. so I have. An interesting question for you. I'm going to switch to screen cap mode for our video listeners. You can see Harrison twice there, guys. <laughs> All right. So I am working on the production setup for the carabiners. Mm -hmm. This will be used for both the not for climbing and for the not so tactical carabiners. Okay. The original version that I did last time. Let's see. Do I have the? I don't have the handy. The original version I did last time was basically just the carabiner. The whole outside was laser cut to the final dimension, and mm -hmm. I just cut in the slots. Mm -hmm. I want to get, uh, I want to apply some lessons that I learned from last time, issues with the laser cut blanks on this production run. Okay. Basically... The, the biggest change that I'm doing is I am profi profiling the whole interior and exterior of the carabiner. So there will be no laser cut edges left, except maybe at the lock face. Mm -hmm. But everything that is visible will be machined, which will make it look a lot better and will give me a lot more consistency and reduce. We have uh, two different failures that were caused by like weird uh, dips and in the, the laser cutting, like, I don't know what mm -hmm. happened if the sheet moved, but basically the laser cutting was particularly rough on the flexure on two different carabiners, and that okay. caused a stress concentration, which caused carabiner failure. So we're getting rid of that, and we're also, um, it's going to look a little bit nicer by going to the yeah. fully machined outside. I like it. Now, by changing this blank... Mm -hmm. We went from a blank cost of $4.20 each to a blank cost of, it was around $5.50. Okay. 
which isn't a huge deal. I, I'll gladly eat that money for the better product. Mm -hmm. However, here is where the interesting thing happens. Before, mm -hmm. at the $4.20, we could not machine these out of plate material cheaper than we could get them laser cut. Like, it was literally cheaper to get pre-laser cut blanks than it was to buy plate material. Mm -hmm. At the $5.60 number, it becomes cheaper to get plate. Okay. So do we just buy plate and make them ourselves? And then we have the advantage of, like, for example, being able to tweak the design, mm -hmm. but at the expense of like a significant amount of machine time and probably tool life. Or we could keep going with this style of laser cut blank. It's got two little taps here that we can use for holding down for the work holding. Mm -hmm. And we're just profiling the outside here and doing the slots and stuff. So... I do a little bit of both, but I water jet. I don't laser cut mm -hmm. a lot of my big parts um, just because it saves a lot on machining time, like you said. For your carabiners, if you could remove those two internal lobes, would it go back down to the cheaper price? I don't remember. I don't think I checked that. I did check variations of the lobes. And also, here, I'll show you my original plan. My original plan was to have them all ganged up like this. Mm -hmm. This is in the neighborhood of 10 times more expensive per carabiner plank. Yeah, that makes sense. No, no, per it's just each carabiner, not per yeah. the total thing, per mm -hmm. carabiner. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? No, that, it does. It does. Uh, and the reason it makes sense, to me at least, is because... That is viewed as one really complex laser part oh, versus yeah. versus simple single parts. And you're yes. forcing a nester into a particular uh, layout so that they can't fit it within. So say they have that huge titanium sheet that they're trying to cut these out of. And they're trying to use the most, trying to fill up the most volume of that mm -hmm. sheet. With the smaller parts, they can arrange it, and that might be where you have some of your variations in your laser-cut parts. They can arrange those carabiners around other parts, so stuff that they are charging higher volumes or higher prices for that would normally be um, – there's going to be areas around it that they would normally be a scrap that's usually included in that larger part. But now that's basically – they're able to turn what would be scrap material into money yeah. by having smaller parts. And that makes so, sense. That's that's why I think once you get below a certain size, why they can charge less for it than what you can buy the material for is because it's material. It's once it's under a certain size, it's material that would normally be get thrown in the trash that they can recoup. And so for them, it's worth more to charge less for that than it is to throw that in the trash. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And well, actually, one of the things I was thinking about with making them out of plate is, so let's say the material cost is about the same, right? It's the same mm -hmm. $5.50 or whatever I said per carabiner. I get to keep the scrap now and yeah. I can either use that for more products or mm -hmm. I can scrap it. And, you know, titanium scrap is not worth nothing. Like, yeah, it's about the most yeah. expensive scrap you can scrap. So if it were me... I would lean heavily towards the doing it all from a solid sheet. That's where I'm for, leaning right now. For the reasons that you're stating, 
However, I would, before I abandoned that idea completely and went that direction, I would try to get rid of the lobes. And I would do a strategy where I would have probably two pins and two screws holding down the carabiner that would be in locations that would either be open slots or would be underneath the scales. Mm -hmm. And I would screw through them and I'd do the whole outside perimeter uh, plus maybe a few of the open slots um, if possible. And then I would do a second op where I do the rest of it. Um, So I turn it into a two op part and I just have an op one and an op two. So I'm already doing a two op part. Because at very least, the the bare minimum I need to do in the second op is some countersinks on the other side of the threaded hole. Mm-hmm. So I'm already doing a two-op part. And my original plan was to hold the carabiner with those two lobes, the two tabs, uh, machine a couple locating holes, flip it over for op two, secure it with those locating holes and a couple clearance holes. And then mm-hmm. machine the outside, machine off the tabs, and mach- finish machine the outside, and machine in the mm-hmm. slots. So I was already planning on doing that, but you're right. I actually, I don't necessarily even need the lobes at all. No, I would do everything I could to eliminate the lobes, and and because you're going to be putting so many different holes in different areas uh, already, I would try mm-hmm. to use that to my advantage as best I could. And try to keep the pricing down as low as possible via that method. I, I'll i do some experiments and see what I can come up with. Because I, I, I've done, I've been doing a lot of 1911 grips here recently. And those I just hold with two screws. And it works flawlessly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll play with that. I did finally order some Torx head for 40 screws to replace the button head hex ones that I was just stripping, stripping out left and right. Mm-hmm. And I also ordered uh, a couple different driver options that I can use. One of okay. which being one that'll bolt onto my, not bolt on, but attached to a small pneumatic driver I have, which will hopefully speed up the process of getting them on and off. And then I also got ones that are designed for changing inserts on like lathe tools. And they mm-hmm. are. They got like that little torqued, handle grip. To the side. Oh, they're limited. Oh, okay. Yeah. So That's hopefully cool. I won't strip, you know, be constantly stripping those out. Yeah. I think, um, I think Grimsmo has those that he sends with his knives. They're torque limited. Yeah. So you can't over torque them. I think he buys them by, you know, the thousands. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's cool. So, but you're all in on plate stock because I, I'm inclined to agree. I, I am all in on plate stock, um, but I would do everything I could to make the other work first. And then once I, because for me personally, if I'm making that kind of a switch, I want to make sure I have all the justifications I can on my side. And I don't want to leave something half done before I switch. I like to know, okay, here's my empirical data. This is going to be a better decision. Um, Maybe not because of cost, but maybe because of quality. uh, Maybe because it opens up me having more products uh, in those scrapped areas. Like there's a lot of different reasons that I would do it the other way. 
Um, but I want to at least have a game plan for how I'm going to take advantage of that before I make that switch because it will be more expensive ultimately. And for me, um, especially um, early on, I, I money was uh, was and still is pretty tight, and I wanted to make sure that every dollar um, <laughs> was going to be giving me money back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but. I, I would I would not shy away from the plate stock. And one thing that I would look at is are you getting plate stock from that uh that supplier we've talked about in the past? Yes. Okay. That's uh American Metal Exchange for anybody who is curious. American Metal Exchange. Okay. Have you when you priced it out and it came out to be five would you say five seventy? It's in that that ballpark. I don't remember the exact number. It's five fifty, five sixty, somewhere in there. Was there volume discounts? Was there a particular size you were going for? Like, because I I like to with a product, I'm a lot more liberal with how I buy my material if I can optimize it to the best dollar value. I based mine on assuming the same density, dens- the same nesting density as the. That skeleton frame version I show you, I showed you. Mm-hmm. Assuming same nesting density as that, and using like a twelve by twenty four sheet, which is not huge, and not okay tiny. So I there is the potential for volume discounting in there, and there's okay. also the potential for more efficient nesting. Okay, and is there potential to buy something larger, like long and thin, and bandsaw cutting it? Yes, that's okay. an option too. Though they shear everything from plate and they'll make you basically whatever size you want. Like all okay. of the cost per square inch just about always works out the same, no matter what okay. form factor you have it in. Okay. Plus quantity that's discount. That's fair. So I'll just I'll say, hey, I want, you know, eight by twelve or whatever size works out for my fixturing and give me ten sheets of it. And it'll just ship me ten sheets of eight by twelve. Okay. So if you do that, then what I did you, let's see here. What thickness are you getting it in? I am getting in what is commercially called three sixteenths, which is actually a uh, 0.22. 0.22. Yeah. Okay. Which another advantage of this is when I ordered uh, the 0.187 material from send cut send, when I was doing my prototyping, they sent me this 0.22 stuff. When I was going to production, they sent me stuff that was thinner. I don't remember the exact measurement, but it was like, oh, like 0.17 or 1.5, something like that. And that is what caused the stability issues with the carabiner. So I can also, so by doing it myself from play, I get to control the thickness of the carabiner and not depend on the whims of send cut set. Gotcha. So it's the 0.18, 187 material? Yes. Okay. So let's see here. We're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of math here because I'm Ooh, curious. Excellent podcasting. And I know, right? <laughs> so for a 12 by 24 sheet, or were you were you talking 12 by 12 or 12 by 24? I, I think I did it based on the 12 by 24. It may have been 12 by 36. Okay, so uh, 12 by 24, you're 288 squared inches and you're $350 a sheet. So you're roughly uh, 
$2 per square inch, which is actually a pretty good price. And then what was the size of your cutout that you showed a minute ago? The, okay, I can look up the actual one. I, I did a lot of estimation because I wasn't like, like I was just trying to figure out what angle to approach this from yet. I was not, you know, spreadsheet yet. Okay, so it is 11 by, by 7. And I think I was using 6 seven. by 12 for my math. So, so that's that's seventy seven dollars for that, and so uh, or uh, eleven by seven times one point two two. Sorry, that's ninety four dollars. And how many carabiners is that? Sixteen. Yeah, five point eight seven. So yeah, you're right. You're right there. So yeah. And with a little bit of discount pricing, and assuming like a dollar per pound scrap price. Yeah. I was I was wondering if I could eke out eke out a little bit more if yeah. you were doing it differently. But. Well, with better nesting, I could probably get that down a little bit. W one thing that I've always thought, and here's here's my two cents on this. Open that drawing back up. Show it on the on the podcast again. This one. Yeah. So for me, if it was me doing it, you having a little bit more spring tension, I think would be good. And I would try so hard to overlap two of those and have the arm of one going into the mm. into another one, and that would reduce your that would that would increase your density, I think, significantly. Yeah, the because you're already going to open up much much more due to the end mill clearance on both sides. Basically, mm -hmm. I'm using a two and a half millimeter end mill, at least current plan that may move to a three millimeter. But mm -hmm. current plan, two and a half millimeter end mill, both sides of the arm. That means that I need at least five millimeters of a gap there, plus the thickness of the arm. That's so fair. all of a sudden you're like half an inch open. Now, this design will be stiffer than the last ones because I'm going from an eighth inch slot down to a two and a half millimeter slot, and they are getting a little bit thicker in Z. Okay. That's fair. So it. Yeah, I would love to be able to nest them that way. Maybe I put a pry bar in here, like, or a bottle yeah. opener. Yeah. And I think by cool. by staggering them, like right now I have them linked in a line, but if I were to stagger them, I could probably get a, I don't know, a couple bonus ones. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot you can do um, on the nesting side of things. Um, and by the way, when you took those measurements, did you take them from the bars or did you take them from the? Out of sheer laziness, I took them from the bars. Okay. So yeah, there's not, even some gonna, more bonus. Yeah, which isn't going to be a much, but it, it'll be a little bit. Yeah, um, at least a quarter inch yeah. times, let's see, a quarter inch times like, what was it? Eight inches long or 12 inches long? It was 11. So 11 inches long. So that's like a square inch or two. Like, Yeah, that's that was a good five dollars four or five dollars off of the the 95 yep or 94 so it's not nothing that's for sure yep especially when you start multiplying by i think it's 200 i have to look at my exact numbers i, I believe it was 255 cores and like 275 regular scales yeah by the way i'm still looking at myself oh hey i'm looking at you too <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> now the scales 
I just get laser cut, right? Like, I don't see any reason to machine those. I mean, with how cheap they are, if you could get them out of... Are you doing those out of aluminum, or what are you doing them out of? No, they're titanium. They're titanium as well? The only thing that can't be laser cut on them is they need a countersink on each hole. Man, if you so, if you had a vacuum work holding, I would at least ponder ponder yeah. doing it out of sheet. I might have that. I, I would I would ponder that greatly. I'd have to check prices. I know the scales from Send Cut Send are about a buck each, maybe a buck twenty five, if I remember right. Okay. And I don't know how much sheet is. I haven't gone that, down that rabbit hole yet. I would ponder that because, once again, you'll get cleaner edges, your parts will line up better, you'll have more control, flexibility, all that jazz. Yep. I would consider that for sure. Because one thing you could do is if you're doing a lot of contouring, or uh, if you're doing a lot of patterns, you could do all your patterns and drill your holes and then cut them out of the sheet and that'd give you really clean lines. Yep. Do your contour last. You could you could profile all your parts while they're in the sheet and give you a lot of hold down so you can do some really cool stuff and then drill some center holes. And if you have a if you have a vacuum work holding, you could have O-rings around your holes, screw through them, and then profile cut them out. Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't have to worry with glue or any other weird technique that's not really efficient in a volume production setting. Yeah. I so on vacuum work holding, I was talking to someone on Discord and they had a unit that was like a DIN rail mounted uh, solenoid filter and Venturi unit, all neatly compact. Uh, and they sent me that, which I may or may not use. The it has some like weird cord connections for I don't know, some sort of con- connector, like automation connector. And I don't know what that connector is. I don't know how much it costs to get one. So it could be one of those things I look on eBay and it's like a buck. Mm -hmm. Or it could be one of those things that's like $45 for the cord and it costs way more than my my little Venturi unit. Um, Alternatively, I was looking around and I do have a small cheap Venturi unit that I got a couple years ago and never used. And I think I have a solenoid and I could just DIY something with that. Yeah. But I, I would at least give that a fair shake because if for what you're trying to do with your unique patterns and whatnot, I think you could, you'll find higher. Have, have you done any scales that have been laser cut out yet? Or have you only done them on nope. sheet? Only sheet. Cause you're going to have screws and fasteners in the way. And that's the only way that I know that you can hold them. And then, right. That, that's the I only was way doing super glue work holding, but I don't want to do that in production. Yeah. But I mean, if you get laser cut scales, yeah, super glue is probably about the only way you can do it and still have access to where the heads are going to be for the screws. Yeah. Because the... aren't, aren't you going to have to countersink those? Yes. So, yeah, super glue is like your only method if you don't go down the sheet route. I could put, I could put them in a tight fitting pocket and have With... some sort of clamp that is on the portions of it that are not getting countersunk. This is sounding that like doesn't work big, for the premium ones, but it does work for the other ones. That's still sounding like a lot of work for a production jig. I mean, maybe. I don't know. 
for for what I would think it it sounds like it would be. The unattended runtime would be much better with going out of sheet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's my thought on it. But regardless, I think you'll do whatever method you do. I have the utmost confidence that you'll do it well. We'll so. eventually get it to work. It may bankrupt us, but we'll get it to work at some point. <laughs> They're really cool. And uh, like I said, there, there was a there was one guy that I talked to who wanted to wholesale them. So mm-hmm. I think I mentioned that last week, but so I know there's there. They're definitely unique enough that there's a lot of people that like them. So, yep. Just need to get these kinks worked out and get them produced. Now the, the not for climbing carabiners, have they been, they've been for sale on your Etsy for a while. Have they? Yes. Pretty much ever since you fulfilled all the Kickstarters. Yep. How've they been doing on there? They do not sell on Etsy for whatever reason. I don't oh, know really? if it's just like the product photography or the, the page or if it's, you know, whatever else. They, since we have started running ads, like paid ads on Facebook, which is something that we are uh, slowly trying to improve on, they have been selling via paid ads. Okay. Right now, let's see, we, we ran a test for a week. And then actually I ran a test for three days and just kind of got familiar with the platform again and nothing happened with that first test. And then Scott and I sat down and we really went through it and we basically got to the point where we ran it for like a week or two weeks. And basically we just break, we're just breaking even with the ads and they were still fairly low effort. Okay. But we sold a few carabiners through there. We kind of accidentally drove some ad traffic towards the Kickstarter campaign and drove um, some traffic there. We spent oh, about a that... hundred. Go ahead, and then I have a thought. I say we spent about hundred and twenty bucks in ads, and we had a gross revenue of about two hundred, two hundred ten bucks in, in in sales, which which works. It's I would like that ratio to be a little bit better, but we make money like that. Yeah. So. I'm running another ad test right now. Like I literally just started it before the the podcast. And if that can get us just a little bit better ROI, then I we may start dumping more money in that. Right now we're just dropping a couple bucks at a time, just trying to figure out what works, how to do this. Scott has a ads background, but he always did print ads like in newspapers. He worked for um, Gannett, which was the largest newspaper company, I assume in the world, definitely in the US. Oh, wow. But that is newspaper ads, and they are very different than digital ads. So we've been we've been learning about that. Fun fact about ads. Do you know what, like, so there's a thing called ad placement, which is, like, where your ad shows up. Like, it can show up on Instagram stories. It can show up, like, in Facebook feeds. It can show up, you know, in a, in a million different places. Do you know mm-hmm. what, by far, is the most effective ad for us? I have no idea. I've never thought about that. It is Instagram Reels. Really? Every single sale, every single one we made came from an ad that was put into Instagram Reels. Interesting. So I think this is why Instagram likes Reels so much. The ads That makes sense. Well, people are already kind of in that entertainment phase, and it's real easy to get someone with a, oh, man, we really like that. I want that. Yep. 
And the ad that we made looks like a reel. Like it doesn't look like something that you would see in your Facebook feed. And that, that mm-hmm. may be part of it. Like the, the ad we made looks like a reel. So it does well in reels, like shocker. Maybe if we yeah. made an ad that looks like a Facebook post, it would do better in Facebook, but. That makes sense. Yeah. And it, and we were doing best with between like in people of the age group, 18 to 24 and 45 plus. For some reason, we weren't getting the people in between. Actually, we were getting results for the people in between, but they were much more expensive and it wasn't worth the advertising dollars. Advertising to 18-year-olds is much cheaper than advertising to 30-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So that that's basically what my ad is trying right now, is it's targeted between 18 and 24, because that was the cheapest way to get results. Okay. Now, here's, here's an interesting thought for you, because... Um, it's something that we're currently trying to do a little bit more of on, on the mm-hmm. product side of things. Have you ever designed a product around something that's popular in pop culture? I have had that thought several times, like to react to pop culture with a product. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if there was, I don't know, some meme that was going around, I could make a custom coin for that. Actually, it's something mm-hmm. you can do, too. Scott and I even discussed a product line, actually this was before Scott was even on board, where we would, basically the whole point would be to sell customized coffee cups and tumblers by mm-hmm. like putting controversial statements on them that we knew would go viral on on Instagram. Mm-hmm. But we've never actually done it. Okay. Because that's something that with our coins, because it's basically a blank canvas mm-hmm. to write stuff on, it's something that fits very well with easily customizing it for pop culture, like Star Wars or Pokemon or Mario or, you know, any other number of things that are really popular. It's real easy to just uh, have a laser engraved graphic, slap it on there and just start selling it. And so it's something that, um, for that particular product line kind of makes sense. And I've kind of wondered about making other things uh, just for fun, like limited, like, and I feel like that's something that would actually lend itself well to Kickstarter. Yeah. With, with whatever's popular um, because, you know, the super Mario movie came out and it's super popular. So doing like a Kickstarter of a, if, if you're, you know, let's say you make dice on a regular basis, making a Mario themed, uh, power up cube like the with the question mark on it at a metal yeah. i the, think would the do non-copyright really... infringing question mark square yeah <laughs> yeah like I, fe- I feel like that would do really well right now because of how popular that movie is right now uh and like uh, other stuff that's come out in the past like uh i remember i had this thought back whenever uh about a year or two ago whenever uh among us that game got really popular mm-hmm there's a lot of people that were doing like 3D printed stuff. And that's when I was just getting started with the business. And I had a friend who was, uh, we still do some stuff for, but he, uh, he did the 3D printed planters. And yep. so I wanted to do like an Among Us themed one. I never ended up doing it, but I, I later found that they got really popular for a little while on Etsy. Um, so like, I feel like the Etsy marketplace lends itself well to whatever's popular in pop culture right now. Um, that makes sense. You do have you do have products that that like stand the test of time and do really well regardless of what's popular. And I think you need a good amount of those because those are kind of your consistent ones. 
but kind of like the same idea behind your Kickstarters where you kind of have a spurts of cash um, as you're growing your product line. Um, I feel like uh, having some pop culture type stuff would do well. So, for example, if you wanted to get ahead of the curve right now, I think they're about to I don't quote me on this, but I have several friends who've mentioned that the new um, Lynx game is coming out. I think hmm. the second one, it's not Breath of the Wild, but whatever the success, the is. new Zelda. Yeah, 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 Zelda. So, like, with that launching soon, or if it hasn't launched already, it might already be out. Um, coming up with products that are Zelda themed, I think right now would probably do pretty well. Yes. And so um, stuff like that, I, I haven't really done because I don't really have the time to chase it with the what I'm focusing on right now, trying not to get too scatterbrained. But I'm trying to, whenever possible, incorporate that into our products um, that we have for sale. That way we can try to capitalize on some of that stuff. Makes sense to me. The, the problem you run into is you kind of have to, like, you either have to react really, really fast to pop culture, which means you need to know a lot about it and, like, kind of see and understand everything. But mm-hmm. then also, or, or the alternative is you have to kind of predict it, which sometimes you can do, sometimes you can't. Well, and see, that's the thing with our coins. We don't. We have a product, the coins, we have a laser that customizes them. With that particular product, all I need is the art design, and I can grab, I can jump on any bandwagon that shows up if I can make it fit that coin. Yeah. So there, I have a blank slate product that can do any pop culture reference without specifically making a pop culture reference one. Yeah. And so for you, I feel like something like the. For example, the sticky note yes. deal. The bottom of it, where you're stick when you run out of sticky notes, I feel like you should offer customization on that. Mm. The ability for people to customize the bottom of their sticky note. So when they run out of sticky notes, they can have a phrase or, you know, like a like for example, you could have like Link's hearts running out where he's got like half a heart, or Minecraft where he's got half a heart, or low hunger. Like you could you could do all sorts of like fun things for like running out of sticky notes that people like it would take that from not just a simple desk item, but it would allow people to personalize it, um, which is what Etsy does the best of Etsy, all the stuff that sells the best on Etsy is the stuff that we offer customization on where people can personalize it. Um, yeah. That's been that's where we get the majority of our cash flow, our generic stuff sells at a fraction of the rate of the stuff that people can customize that we do with the laser. Well, and I can put designs like on the scales too of the not so tactical carabiner, Mm -hmm. which might, might do well. Mm -hmm. That's a good thought. I need a laser. I need a fiber laser. I have my CO2 laser, which may work for powder coated parts because I could theoretically laser off the powder coat. I've never actually tested that, but CO2 lasers, I think actually do better because they don't touch the metal. The problem with the fiber lasers is they can remove the powder coat, but if you're not careful, they damage the metal underneath because they're designed more for the metal. Um, So we've actually thought about getting a CO2 laser to dealt to deal with powder coat items um, that are difficult to deal with on our laser. Yeah. 
Anyway, we've talked about me a lot. You were talking about Zometry earlier, which I assume yeah. is public knowledge so, that we can talk about here. <laughs> so thanks to the, our guest at, uh, at Servin Solutions, or Ser- Servin, Servin Solutions. Servin. Ser- Servin Solutions. I have been wanting to go back to Zometry to give it another shake. Mm-hmm. And today we did. And we accepted 10 jobs today. And they just kept coming in one after another. It was more jobs than we could. Like, I've never seen Zometry work out as well as it did today. Like, okay. one job after another after another that we could do, that we had material on the shelf, that we didn't really have to order any tooling for. And some of that could be just that we're more experienced. We stepped back from it for a long time. And now we're coming back to it with fresh eyes. Yep. And so that could be some of it. But they've Zometry's also made a lot of changes to their website, and it feels like we're not getting as much junk mixed in. Mm. So I don't know if that's an accident. I don't know if we just happened to look at it at a time when all these parts were coming through that we could do. But it's really exciting, and I'm really hoping that we can start because we have a lot of scrap material. And the majority of the jobs that we accepted were stuff that we already had material. I'd say at least half of them were stuff that we already had leftovers on the shelf that we could just take and start baking right away. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, it's really nice because all that material is paid for. So, yep. it, you know, it, it's it's a lot more profitable when we can do that. Yep. So, and even still, there was other jobs that that did really well. And the nice thing about it is... Basically, also from our conversation with with uh, Servant Solutions, I'm trying to focus a little bit on some smaller items because the material cost is a lot less and it's all in labor. And yeah. right now my labor is cheap compared to my material. And for my big job shop stuff that I do, my margins are higher for my local customers. So it's worth it for me. But whenever I do the, the larger parts on Zometry, it, it usually doesn't work out. Because it's a lot cheaper. Hmm. Yeah. So. Well, I'm excited to hear that. I'm. I was considering picking up some zometry work for a couple days there to kind of help with some of our cash flow, and I kind of accidentally got zometry to send me the test part, apparently, which they mm-hmm. then sent to my old house. But it, you know, a couple hundred dollars here and there could make a big difference for design and everything. So I. If it works for you, I'm definitely going to get more more into it. Yeah, I, I would definitely, I would never depend upon it for my large bulk of income. Mm-hmm. But anytime we slow down, I'm going to look at it a lot closer. Yeah, um, And we kind of are slowed down right now. We're kind of in between some big jobs. And this is able to plug that hole right now. Yes. And so Zometry has always tried to be that. But this is the first time they've actually felt like they're doing they that for us as a business. Yeah. And if it continues, I will happily, uh, you know, try to accept one or two jobs a week from Zometry, um, even if I'm not making very much on it, just to try to keep the algorithm fed. And for you starting out, the piece of advice that I would give you is focus on stuff that you already have tooling for. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can start getting free material because you're you'll take a job you'll buy material that that job will cover that material 
And then whatever scraps you have left over, you can add to a pile that then you can use to prototype your parts. And yes. that's kind of how we got started. And that's how we got a big scrap bin of parts. We have a, a, a shelf full of just random offcut pieces. And almost all of that's from Zometry. And so it's really nice whenever we want to be like, hey, I want to make this random thing. Well, let me go just check the material rack and grab a random scrap of material and, and make it. Yeah. And it would be nice to, even if it could just cover like some extra fixtures, like if it could get me a Pearson system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just design the everything. Like we're so right on the edge right now between being profitable and not. And just being able to fill a couple little gaps when we need to um, could do it. And plus, now that I have Scott here, I can do some zometry work without sacrificing the entirety rest of the business. Like things will still ship themselves. Marketing will still get done. Like Yeah. That that being said, we lost almost a whole day of production doing this. And mm-hmm. so um, one thing that we got to be careful about is that by doing a lot of zometry stuff, it does make it hard to go after other opportunities. Yes. So it is nice because it does bring in money, but there is zometry does demand a lot of focus to do it well. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the main thing that I would caution because one, you have to keep up with all the updates so that they know what you're doing. Um, two, you got to do inspections on all your stuff. So you got to make sure you have all the right equipment to inspect the parts you're doing. And three, the deadlines are usually pretty tight on most of those. I'd say a week or two, um, for most of the stuff that we do. Like, like I said, we accept the 10 jobs that are due and all of the jobs will be due by the middle of next week. Okay. And most of them are going to be due on Thursday. We have like four or five that are due on Thursday. So like it puts a lot of pressure on you to get them done and to focus only on them, which is okay for us. um, But, and that's, I just want to caution that for you. Uh, If you, if you run into a slump where you're waiting, like you're not doing anything and you're waiting on Scott to do something, I'd say that's a perfect time to do zometry work, but I would not accept so much that, you lose you you end up to a point where you have to delay a kickstarter or uh product development or something else i would definitely try to focus on the work that you can fit in without slowing everything else down do you know what your average revenue is per job give or take ballpark for what you are taking on zometry usually or my, like if gross. In, in terms of in terms of material cost Whenever I was doing larger parts, it was between uh, whatever my material cost plus uh, plus 20 to 60%. So if if my material cost me $50, then the job might have cost me $100 to $120. And that doesn't include you, right? They paid you. So so if I'd get paid $100 to $120 for a job that I spent $50 on material which means I'd have to get the job done in under an hour to hit a $75 an hour shop rate. Okay. And so if you're trying to hit a shop rate value, it's not great unless you're really, really fast. Uh, And so that's why for a business that is trying to get stuff done at an hourly rate, it kind of sucks because you have to be really fast. But uh, on the flip side, 
if you're just trying to fill in work and you're not pressured by how long it takes you to get stuff done. And it, one thing it does really well is it teaches you to be a better machinist by, by uh, chugging on a fire hose. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that sense, it's made us a really, a, a much better machinist because we have accepted a lot of jobs that are right on the edge of our comfort level and then walked away with the ability to, the knowledge and the uh, understanding to be able to tackle a more complicated job in the future. That's, that's Zometry is, is what has built our competence level more than anything else in, in the different things that we do. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still considering it. This has kind of been a, a debate going back. I don't know, long time, like a year, but I would say, I would say it'll cost you nothing to, to get signed up and get going with it. And it'll always be there in the background if you run into trouble. Mm-hmm. So I would at the very least sign up and do everything you need to do to get on the list. And then if you ever run into a spot where it's like, man, I need to generate some cash and Kickstarter and my website are not doing it right now. Zometry it for a week or two, get some cash coming and go from there. Yeah. Because yeah, even... Even a hundred or two hundred dollars a week right now, like I said, we're we're so close to the the border between money and you know not enough money. So even a hundred or two hundred dollars a week right now would be enough for us to keep yeah. going longer. Yeah, and that wouldn't be too bad. Like, it's one of those things. It's it's one of those things that I recommend and don't at the same time. It's so difficult to make a firm decision because I've had such mixed results with it myself. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm I'm high on the kite right now because we're we got a lot of really good jobs, but I've, this has also never happened before. So I don't know if it's a fluke of nature or if it's something that we can hopefully continue. So, is there much titanium on Zometry? Like if I was like okay, if I went, I'm going to specialize in titanium. Would there be enough there to pull two three jobs a week, or is it all aluminum? It's ninety percent aluminum for us. Aluminum and stainless, but I have gotten three different titanium jobs okay. within the last year, but I have not actively sought them out. So I don't know if there is more or less of those out there. I, my gut says that there's less of them overall, but if you specialize in them and those are the ones you go for, and if you can get the algorithm to feed you them, I don't know how many there's actually is on the toll network because yeah. everyone's board is different. And if you specialize in it, maybe Zometry will learn that and send you more than the average. And that's what I don't know. The harder part about titanium is I know that I can get pretty much any reasonable piece of aluminum same day or next day right now mm-hmm. from um, my local supplier. I don't know if titanium quite works like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, theoretically, they offer titanium, but they're probably bringing it from somewhere outside the state or whatever. Well, but... I mean, McMaster has a lot of stuff. It's just more expensive. Yeah. And so all my jobs that I've done out of titanium, I've gotten from McMaster just because my lead time's quicker. Um, and I just make sure I just make sure that the job has enough to cover it. As long as the job has enough to cover it, plus some extra, um, I don't really care where I get my material because I'm still making money. Um, at that point, you know, if, if the job demands, I need it here in a week and I can get it here in two days and still have, you know, 40 to 50% profit margin, 
on uh, over my material costs, um, then I'll probably do it. Okay, fair enough. Um, because in my mind, that is that is at least heading in the right direction. And whether I lose my butt on it because I ended up spending way more time or whatnot, at the end of the day, I'll have either the tooling or the material left over, even if even if the cash side of the equation comes out even. This reminds me, even though it's not related at all, I have a part to show you. Let me okay. see if I can find it here. Unfortunately, I think it is patented, and I'm not sure that you can. Like, I, I don't think it's something that you could really like knock off. But I want you to look at this part and tell me. I wish I could block out the price from what I was going to show you, but look at this part compared to the prices they're asking for it. What in the world is that? So that is a rail for a one wheel. Okay. I think they're about 18 inches long, maybe 24 inches long. Aluminum. Okay maybe inch and a half tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some features on both sides, but look at, look at the price. Wow. $420. And they are always sold out. Um, hmm. The profit margins on that have got to be just ridiculous. How wide is it? It's like an inch or two. So if it's two inches by what's say an inch tall. Oh, so like an inch thick, an inch or two tall and like, I think it's like 18 inches long, but even the standard rails here, the non-fancy ones, and these ones are not patented. They're charging $135 for some really simple machining. Yeah. So they are 70, 75, but for perspective and McMaster is, is expensive as crap. Yeah. I would say you can always half the price that you, the McMaster tells you. Oh, you, sometimes you can, you can cut it to a third with some of the suppliers I deal with, but that's 130 bucks for a six foot stick. And so if that's, let's see here. Math on a podcast. Yeah. Math on a podcast. Woohoo. We're talking. We're thinking. (laughs) So yeah, that's going to be like $70, $60, $70 in material that they're then machining. And I'm sure they're getting it way less than that. Um, If they're they're buying it in bulk. If they're buying is it really gold. sixty or there's no way that's sixty or seventy dollars from McMaster? From, from McMaster, Ma- yeah, per part or per, I per, got, per, per set, per set of parts, per two parts. So that's both sides. So it's that's true. Like, I wasn't thinking about them being pairs, but they do come in pairs. So that's I guess per that pair. does help a little bit. Yeah, so that would be like thirty or twenty to thirty dollars uh, per side, and. I can guarantee you can get it a lot less than that than from McMaster. Yeah. Like, I bought that's... a 12 foot bar the other day of, I guess it was one by five eighths for 60 bucks. So if you double that, basically like 120 bucks for 12 feet, mm-hmm. I guess that was 60, 61, not 70, 75. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe the prices are reasonable, but it seems like a really good way to make money. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And that's one of those things. If I I used to have a bunch of whole bunch of hobbies that I did, but since how I broke and don't have any time, I don't really have any hobbies anymore. Yeah. And I think once I start getting to the point where I have money and time again, if I can get into some hobbies, I can make products for those hobbies 
And that's probably when I'll, I'll probably make more money doing that than what I'm doing now. And then I'll be pissed off. <laughs> but, but that's usually how it goes. Cause like you look at those guys that you look at those guys that like are pilots that do all this crazy stuff and they have these really fancy planes that they build and you're like, how do they afford to do all that? And they're yeah. like, it's like, well, you know, I make these parts for my plane and then I sell them to everyone else. And so like their hobby becomes self-generating and generates enough for their hobby and for everything they do. So I don't know. I'm not going to lie. The other day I was a little bit jealous because my wife made $500 in selling poop and selling manure that we get for free manure. Yeah. Our neighbors have horses. The neighbors, my, my wife was like, Hey, bring that manure over here. And the guy, like when he cleans out the stalls, he brings us the manure and my wife turns it, you know, once a week or twice a week. And the other day she sold $500 in manure. It's like, I am working way too hard to make similar amounts of money. Yeah. (laughs) You are getting free horse poop and making $500. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That that is painful. I know. That that is very painful. (laughs) What I tell myself is that my hobby slash business is expensive and... I'm making more money than I feel like I am because everything that I make goes back into the business yes. because everything is so expensive. Yep. So. Yeah, shovels and wheelbarrows are cheap. Yeah. Plus, we have a little bit more scalability. Yeah. But it's true. There's, there's, and see, it's so much little stuff like that. It, it, it really ticks me off the more <laughs> I think about it. Because there's these people that come up with these stupid little things, like the fidget spinner craze. Like, if I had started yeah. my business in the middle of the fidget spinner craze, like, I was watching, I back when I was in college, I was watching this guy. and Because I just liked machining stuff for a long time. I found a random guy on YouTube. He was buying key stock bar. Okay. and So it already had the key, the gear profile in it. And... He was running it on his lathe and he was boring out the center and then parting them off. So that's a really simple operation. Yeah. And then he was putting, he was machining out a, you know, a a triangle piece to hold everything together and throwing his bearings in and making a really, you know, high end metal fidget spinner. And he's getting like 200 bucks a pot for these things. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I, I know that guy. What is his name? We used to be in a Facebook group together back when Facebooks were the like central yeah. collaboration point. What is his name? But yeah, I knew that guy. And um, he was like, yeah, he, he's like, yeah, I can't keep these things in stock. They're selling like hotcakes. And it's just like, I mean, that key stock wasn't that expensive, especially back then. And, you know, yeah. and he, he had like a it wasn't like a Pierce. It wasn't a Pierce and Pallet system, but he had something that was kind of along those lines where he was doing the bodies of them. And it was just like. I hate you. Like, <laughs> I really hate you. Like you caught a wave and now you're, you're selling these little piddly stuff for stupid amounts of money. Kind of reminds me of uh, fidget things on some level. I hate you. Fidget <laughs> things. No offense. <laughs> no offense, but I hate you. I, I love you, but I hate you. <laughs> His 
Kickstarter just finished. He did really well. Yeah, he did. Was, I, I, I really do just like under thirty k. Yeah, I do like what Fidget Things does though. Like I get glued to his page a lot yeah. on Instagram, but he does he does good work. But anyways, st- people like that. I I I'm envious of them, but I also try not to just copy people. And so I don't I don't want to chase after what someone else's success. I really want to find my own, but I and something similar so that I can be the next person that everyone hates. <laughs> yeah, I would like to be that person. So, and you know, they always say grass is greener on the other side, and I am really happy with how our business is. Like, it's it's pretty easy for me to look at them and go, "Man, I hate them for what they, you know, their success." But at the same time, they're they're great inspirations that help me even get started. Without guys like that, I probably never would have even gotten going. Yeah. So. It's a double-edged sword. I don't want anyone listening to this podcast to think that I'm I'm truly upset at them. I'm really not. I, I honestly love everything they do, and I think they do great work. But I also hate them. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so anybody listening to this podcast like five years in the future when Harrison and I are both rich and famous, we were really struggling for a long time. We weren't always rich and famous. We didn't always have a flock of kerns. Yeah. Or a fleet of mores. So, (laughs) side thought. We were trying to figure out, there's so many different, you got flock, herd, (laughs) murder of crows. Yeah. So what would would a, a conglomeration of CNC machines be, I wonder? I've always gone with flock. I'm not sure that's accurate. I would definitely say if you have a group of robot arms, the robot arms are definitely a flock. How about a munch? A munch of CNC machines? A munch of mills? A munch of mills. Because they're, you know... I I like the sound of it. (laughs) Chomping on aluminum. Yeah. Uh, In some people's shops, you could call it a squeal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is true. A squeal of hosses. (laughs) Yeah. All, all I know is that if, if, if things continue, I really changing gears slightly. I really want to get a robot arm so mm-hmm. bad. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, I'm sending out the call. If anyone has any information on cobot tending CNC machines and setups like that, please reach out to me. I am wanting to do that so bad. I have no money for it right now, but. <laughs> Stuff is in the works where I could need one in the next six months to a year. And I would love to start doing the research today. So. I'm still not sold on, on robots. I think if I had the choice, if someone gave me like, I don't know, $150,000 to build an automated system, like you could go with like a VF2 and a robot arm. But I think I would rather copy like austere manufacturing and have like a Speedio with a spindle gripper. I would do that for a product line, not for a job shop. Fair, except do you listen to the incremental podcast? Yeah, I do. The, I'm, I'm not, I haven't listened to all their episodes. I think I'm on like nine or 10. The guy that's not austere manufacturing and whose name I can't remember. He has a job shop with speedios with grippers. Oh, really? Yes. And I think, oh, that- well, you know, I'm just assuming it's a spindle gripper. I could be wrong about that. Because 
What I like about those is there was a guy, I think I sent you the video. There's a guy, and, and this is the guy that I'm kind of modeling it after. Um, he's a one-man band. He's got three or four CNC machines in his shop, and he's got and he's got two or three robots. Mm-hmm. And he's got his robots running his medium production, medium to high production jobs while he does the onesie twosie stuff on the last machine. And I really like the idea of that because I like the idea for the job shop world of setting up a table. And if I'm doing, cause if I'm doing like a 30 piece job, if I can have a robot do that and then come back and do another job later, like, like say, say if I can have a cobot that's efficient enough that I only need an order of, 20 parts, anything over 20 parts, and it's more efficient to run the robot than for me to run it, mm-hmm. then I would do that in a heartbeat. If, if they're really adaptable enough to, to, that it makes sense to do that. And that's what yeah. I would find out. Because I think a lot of people have the idea that it takes, you know, 100 or 200 parts before a robot starts to make sense. But based off that guy's video that I was watching, um, he was, he, most of his stuff was in the um, 30 to 50 parts range and he'd have he'd set up his robots he says it takes me about as long to program my machine as it does my robot and then I just run the job and so if that's true if it truly does take let's say it takes me a half hour to program my machine a half hour to program the robot and then the machine can run for four hours unattended and and it can do that consistently no matter the job size then I just have to make sure that whatever job I'm doing if it's got you know 20 parts or 10 parts, it would make sense to set up the robot even on a job that small. Yeah. If, you if could I also, have... Go ahead. You could also find some methods to cheat. Like you could say, like if you said, okay, I will only ever use stock that is, you know, one, two, three, or four inches wide. Mm-hmm. Then like all of a sudden you're going from needing, you know, 36 different sizes of grippers to one size of grippers or whatever. Or, you know, like yeah. you can start narrowing it down and like building in some templates you know maybe you spend a little bit more on material but then you're running it offline yeah and that's that's the kind of stuff that i want to get figured out and he was also using the versa built gripper system which is a really cool system have you looked into that much i've definitely heard that name but i couldn't tell you no so what it is is imagine soft jaws for a vice Mm-hmm. but they can be attached to a robot or to okay. a vice on your table. Yes. And so the idea is that you're, you don't have to build a fixture mechanism for your robot. Instead, you just make soft jaws. The robot will lock onto the soft jaws. They'll grab your part and then they'll leave the soft jaws in the CNC machine while it's, per, while it's running. They grab the soft jaws and clamp onto the part and set it down. And then they release the part while hanging onto the soft jaws and grab the next jar part and it automatically loaded into those soft jaws, stick it back in the machine. And so you're not making individual grippers for the robot. You're buying a whole bunch of aluminum blanks, soft jaws for the VersaBuilt system. The robot only has one interface it ever has to deal with. And you're not, you're, you're going to have to make soft jaws for most jobs anyway. So just use those. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of want to do, Actually, what I really want, this is what I really want. I really want a, a bar feeder for my Tormach. They'll just oh, like, yeah. you know, like even if it's just 
pushing in, you know, some flat stock and then reclamping with the device and pushing it farther in. Like that would be super handy. The other thing I want to do is like the Pearson system where it's got a pneumatic cylinder on mounted against the headstock and, you know, can just pick up a plate. And with vacuum work holding and the new carabiner design, I could potentially pull that off. Yeah. Then you could do all your op ones with the vacuum work holding and you could have a couple solenoids and you could, you could totally pull that off. Yep. Then you could have overnight production runs. No, I will can, say can, one of one of my plans for this production run is to not do them in as much bulk, and to you know set us you know we'll we'll figure this out later. But say I'm going to ship 20 completed carabiners a day, and mm-hmm. you know do machining, finishing all in one day and ship. And by doing smaller batches like that, I can also work in other parts like zometry or prototyping. Mm-hmm. Because the issues I ran in, one of the issues I ran into with the not for climbing carabiner is when I was doing the production, I was not doing anything else. I wasn't doing any R and D. All I was doing was making carabiners, and nothing else went on the machine. Yeah, but I still, I still need the, like, be able to switch between things, which I did not do for the not for climbing carabiners. Yeah. Well, if you're gonna do something like that then that sounds a lot like the continuous improvement podcast for one. Yes. And for, for, for two, I think that you'll be a lot more successful overall with stuff like Zometry um, because then you can kind of fit that in. And that'll actually probably benefit you well because you can have, you can be searching and programming and doing all the Zometry stuff while your machine's doing production parts in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you can switch it all over and do Zometry parts in the afternoon while the other stuff's getting shipped and packed and, and whatnot. Yeah, kind of my theory was, okay, so I come in the morning, I run the day's worth of carabiner parts, however many that is, stick them in the tumbler, then Scott comes in, takes the parts that we made yesterday out of the tumbler, does the finishing work on them, assembles them, ships them, and then while he's doing that, I have the machine open for zometry. Mm-hmm. I guess the only problem, hmm, maybe, I guess we'd have to do like two batches a day potentially because I, like, I don't want to lose the benefits of the night run. Or what you could do is um, if you could run a batch in the morning while you're doing the zometry stuff, run your zometry stuff. And then if you had the ability to quick change back with the fixturing, like a quick change fixturing, you could just set it up and then start a night run before you leave. Yeah. Okay, because so if you I, have I come in from the I come in for the day, I pull the parts off the machine, I stick them in the tumbler. I I actually I won't even need to tumble as much this time as I did last time, but um I stick them in the tumbler, I do zometry work. Zometry yep. finishes up and then I can run probably a pallet or two and then the nighttime pallet. If you have everything on pallets that you can pull off, like the Saunders pallets, you should be able to quickly take those, take have your work set up where you can just quickly go between everything. Yes, which is what I'll do. So that's what I do yeah. now, even. I have I have mod vices on Saunders machine work pallets with preset work coordinate systems, and I pull them on and off depending on what I'm working on. That would actually work for your zometry stuff, too. You could have it yeah. all set up offline. If you have one or two of those pallets, yep. that could work well. I like it. 
I may have to do that. Now I have to drive down to Indianapolis to get the uh, stock for the zometry parts that they set, sent to my old address. So if you just did all the zometry stuff, why'd you have your old address in there? Did you, did you like re- re- start off from like a year ago? So yeah, I started off, like I had originally made an account like a year ago and then decided against it. And just the other day I was like, okay, I, you know, this could be helpful. And I just started poking around a little bit more. I never hit a button that was like request material. And so I didn't expect them to send it. Like, I didn't think I got far enough in the application for them to send me the material. Because basically I was filling out the paperwork and it started to get to like, you need a quality assurance plan. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this right now. And so I stopped and then they sent me the material anyway. <laughs> Did yeah, you I have to do that? Is that new? That might be new. I don't know if mine had a quality assurance plan. Maybe it's I think not we, required, but. I mean, they probably require it now or at least recommend it. I don't know. So far, we've been in the 90th, 90% range ever since we've started Zometry. And we've only had one, we've only had two issues um, with any of the jobs that we've ever taken on from Zometry. Mm-hmm. That we've that they've come back to us at least. We might have had issues that they didn't tell us, but our score's never been affected. Okay. So the two issues we had, one was with shipping. You gotta be shipping on point with Zometry. And that got our shipping game up. And we had to buy a bunch of different bo- size boxes to be able to handle um all the different jobs that come through. Oh, and annoying. then the other thing is um our material. We've had a couple of jobs with material that came in. That was extrusion material that we ordered. And this just comes with experience. We ordered it exactly to size. Mm-hmm. But the material came in and it was, I don't know, hot rolled, cold rolled, one of the two. And it'd be twisted. And mm-hmm. we'd have a parallel dimension that we couldn't hit because of it. So I had that happen once. And I call, I had to go through Zometry. Thankfully, in both instances, the customer ended up being okay with the problems. And okay. Zometry didn't actually ding us. But they were learning experiences that we tried very hard to not repeat. Yeah. And so as as long as you take on work that you're fairly comfortable with, um, I've never had any quality issues that they've okay. ever told me about. Well, I may give it a try. I feel like I kind of have to now. Like the material landed not, well, it didn't land in my lap. It landed in the lap of somebody else, but I can go retrieve it. and Stainless well. or plastic? I have no idea. I didn't request anything. It just showed up. Okay, because that's one thing that normally happens is that they request stainless or plastic um, if you're going to do the part. So I mean, maybe I'm sure it's, it's stainless, but... Mm. I don't know. How big's the test part? The package said it was a pound. It's like, it's like I don't know. It's like... I okay. mean, you can look up the test part on, on YouTube. They have videos yeah, I, on how to do it. I know what it looks like. I don't remember... I just didn't remember the dimensions. It's it's like um two by four, I think, by an inch or two thick. Hmm. That sounds like it'd be more than a pound. Um, I think it was one by two by four, something like that. Okay. Oh, okay, one by two. Eh. Oh, maybe a pound. I don't know. It's probably a I'll pound find or out. Less. Um, but anyways, I love plastic parts though. I've been doing more and more plastic parts mm. and they are fantastic. Plastic is nice. So much easier to machine. The Tormach destroys it. 
Yeah. I feel like I can actually compete. I feel like I'm running the feed rates that everyone else is running in aluminum because I can actually run them in plastic. Yes. Like, I will the other say, day I had. Go ahead. I was going to say, I accidentally took a full uh, width of cut slot with a 3 8 inch end mill. I'm not sure the depth because it was accidental, but it was at least like three quarters of an inch deep. And like, I could hear the spindle change sound, but just went straight through it. I was like, oh, I didn't know Tormach could do this. Yeah. I was running a, a 3 8 end mill that was an inch and a half long. Okay. And basically full slotting, not at full depth, but at like uh, three quarters of an inch depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, full slot at like full full speed. And it was just like cutting it like butter. In plastic. Was, in plastic. Yeah. I was like, I was like, this is what people probably do in aluminum. Yep. <laughs> my machine can't can't do. But it was it was a lot of fun. So I enjoyed it greatly. Well, on that note, would you like to start taking us out? Yeah. All right, guys. It's that time again where you go and tell everyone that you just got done listening to the Taps and Patience podcast and share it everywhere. <laughs> I'm uh, Harrison with Precision Ingenuity. Signing out with AJ from Design the Everything. Should we let the music run just so we know what the actual song sounds like? Or Oh, sure. We could do that. I will say, seems how we're signing out real quick, I'm going to shout out one person who has probably listened to the very end of this because um, they are very diligent, at least from what I've seen. Is it my mom? No, it's not your mom. My mom probably doesn't make it to the end. She, she, well, you'd hope she does. Let's see here avery avery this this is a gentleman on instagram who has started his journey and he reaches out to me every once in a while with different problems that he's facing and he listens to the podcast so i've well, appreciated you, my yep i've appreciated <coughs> my conversations with him thus far and uh, i hope he continues to improve and get better with time so I am really upset because he does get the opportunity to play on some nicer Haas machines, mm. like a VF2. And so, you know, he'll come to me and with the f- speeds and feeds that he's, you know, wanting, r- currently trying to run. And I'm like, my machine would, would crap a brick trying to do that. Yeah. So <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> but no, it's it's good. He's uh he's progressing pretty quick and he's his parts look really good on Instagram. Nice. All right, I think it's enough of the song. Is it just on repeat? Oh. Like, it's called a chorus.